everybody, it's Josh. Just wanted to take a second to wish everybody a happy new year and tell you all that we're super excited to be dropping season two of Oil & Whiskey starting on January 9th. Uh, but for today's episode, we're going to be throwing it back to one of our most listened to episodes of last year, season one, with special guest Jesse James. Hope everybody enjoys it as much as we do. What's the worst that could happen? And away you go. And now it comes time to actually build it. I'm always thinking about the next thing, not what happened in the past. You want to see someone breaking the mold? We are breaking every possible traffic law. Welcome everybody back to Oil and Whiskey, an ironclad original. Tonight, we are going to be talking with Jesse James. We're also going to be doing a new installment of The Glove Box, everybody's favorite. Jesse James is an entrepreneur, TV star, designer, and mechanic behind the brands West Coast Choppers, Jesse James Firearms Unlimited, Jesse James Culinary, and many more. Based out of Austin, Texas, him and his team build one-of-a-kind bikes, hot rods, knives, and guns. You can see more of his work in the latest West Coast Choppers apparel at jessejames.com and by following him on Instagram at Hope of Welding. Jesse James, welcome to Oil and Whiskey. I know you've probably done a million of these things and you've been interviewed, you know, 10,000 times. So I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, beat a dead horse, but there's so much shit that, uh, so much stuff that's been instrumental in our career and tons of guys that are in our industry and their careers that I think you've brought to the table. And we all grew up, you know, on Monster Garage, Motorcycle Mania, seeing the rise of uh, West Coast choppers. It started literally in 1989. Like I didn't, I was dicking around with bikes and stuff in my garage or my mom's garage. And I didn't really, there's like seven or eight Jessies in the family. So we all go by our middle name. So I didn't really think, I mean, from football, they used to say shit about my name and like kind of the, the newspaper. Anytime I got arrested when I was a kid, they would always print my name. Cause I think it kind of sounded funny. <laughs> Fit, fit, fit the part right yeah you know and i was a pretty big like pop warner high school college football star star so but i was a total shithead when it was when i wasn't playing football and getting in trouble and stealing shit so they, the newspaper I, I remember the dude's name the guys the writer in the press enterprise in riverside the guy's name was joe Damagowski. That was the writer that used to like. So basically this whole shit talking about me in the media didn't start with celebrity. It started like when I was in like <laughs> high school, like, you know, so, but I didn't really think of my name when I thought of like a brand or a shop or anything. And I didn't even really have a shop. I was just making stuff in my garage and sticking around with bikes and trying to build one bike for myself. But I wanted and so I thought of this name, West Coast Choppers, and my friend Robbie, who you know, Rob Fortier, yeah. he he was going to art school at the time. He graduated like a year ahead of me, and he went to art school in Arizona, and he he drew up the original logo, and like we kind of used that like Hell's Angel style font, and we actually did like a bunch of versions of it. There was like a kind of a kooky surfer looking one that I still have the artwork for, and. Yeah, and then like uh, trademarked the brand in 1992, and I, you know, I I printed up shirts in the early 90s. And we went to like Laughlin River. Around. All my friends thought it was lame. 
like two of them wore the shirt, two or three, and everybody else was like, "You don't even have a shop, man. You're in your working out of your garage. This is bullshit." Like, <laughs> you know, I was really focused on the stuff I was doing. Like, I was building bikes that looked like a professional shop with CNC and machining capability and all this stuff built, but I was like you know, a 21 year old in my garage building it, you know, and people, they would just straight tell me my face bullshit. You didn't build that. You had some shop build it. And it was like my original business cards for West coast shoppers. They didn't even have an area code on it. It was just like a long beach number. And like, I was just, I think I just like, like a six block radius, That's what I was trying to impact, <laughs> you know, and nice. there was this house in Hackett Avenue in Long Beach, and it was like kind of this legendary man. I was like, dude, some crazy shit there. And like, it was like the place where everybody cut came if you busted your lawnmower, anything that needed to be welded. I had a TIG welder in my garage so everybody could come there and get stuff welded. And I worked for Performance Machine for a couple of years, and then I went to work for Hot Rods by Boyd. And so I was working Boyd from 6 a.m. to like 5 p.m. And then sometimes later, and then I would come and work in my garage until like one or two in the morning, then get back up and go to work at six, you know, and just, I don't know. You have that youthful energy, just like, there's no reason to just work. And that's kind of how I built the brand. And then um, I quit working for Boyd in 95 and, you know, opened my shop, you know, in 95, like the day I left there, I already had a building and everything dialed in. So what was it? Tell us a little bit about the Boyd story because everybody kind of, you know, hears little bits and pieces, but, you know, I'm I'm personally kind of interested in what that was like through that era working for Boyd. Uh, it was actually, I just talked to the shop manager, Dick Brogdon. He's turning 85 or 86 years old, I think on Saturday. And he was like, everybody hated him, but like, I just loved him because Dick Brogdon and Melba kind of ran. Dick was the shop manager of Boyd's and like, it was kind of sad. He told me, I talked to him Sunday. I was driving and I called him, but he says that I'm the only one that he talks to from the shop. Like nobody else talks to him, you know? And I'm like, it kind of, he's like legendary. Like, you know, Joe Dick did all the trade shows and stuff like that. And not too many people are, you know, got along with him because him and his wife like controlled the money and controlled the nut and bolts and all that stuff. So it's like, Kind of, you know, someone's got to be the bad guy. Yeah, nobody likes those guys. <laughs> I, I remember Little John couldn't stand him, and like told me one day, "That's why they named that guy Dick." <laughs> <laughs> like, but it was it was amazing. You know, I stepped in there when I was twenty three years old, twenty four, and I was the youngest guy by probably twenty years there, and it was. I had built some bikes and been in magazines and all that stuff, you know, in the early nineties and thought I was King shit. And then I went to hot rods by Boyd and realized like, Oh my God, I wanted to like hide everything I did. Cause I didn't want anybody to see it. Cause it was terrible compared to this shop uh, cranked out. And, you know, I was already a TIG welder and I had already done a little apprenticeship with Ron Covell when Ron was up in San Jose and he didn't really do classes and stuff like that, but I had met him. God, who did, I forget how I met him, but I ended up going up and staying up at this house in San Jose for a couple of weeks. And like, 
English wheel and just basic metal forming before I went to Boyd's. And so I kind of, for a 23, 24 year old at that time, nobody was into that at all. Like nobody, nobody wanted to do metal shaping and it was all like old, old dudes. And so coming in with this, you know, punk kid and like, it was about a month before I was there before anybody would really talk to me, you know, of course boy did. And like, you know, Larry Serge, the guy that made all the chassis, his works area was right next to mine. And like, I'm in there with like a boombox playing Slayer and stuff like that. And he just like, <laughs> he was a fucking new guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know me to get fucked or something like that one day like popped off to me and I did I'm new. So I don't want to make any waves. So I did, it took me like a couple of weeks before I told him to fuck off back. But I remember like, I think I was about a month, four weeks or so in. And, uh, you know, I, when I started there, Larry Erickson was the designer. And then a couple of weeks in, then chip started, I started and Larry left. So I was kind of there, right. For, I started right when we were finishing Shazoom and uh like the aluma coop and then i was there the couple of years i was there we built the smoothster uh you know did some work finish zoom did did the boydster uh did like a studebaker did like a car for west uh 49 chevy for west rydell uh did Ron Crafts 48 Cadillac, that one that just sold for like 800 grand. We did that one there. Um, but it was like Chip, Steve Greninger, Andy the Swede, Pele, Pele uh, Johnny Anderson, uh, Larry Sergeff, and then there was Roy, uh, old dude Ron, and then a guy, uh, Oh man, what was George Gould? Who was a really great uh, metal worker that was there, and Dick was the manager. Diane Boyd's old wife was there in the front office, and then Melba. So it was like to me, honestly, like is the greatest hot rod shop in the history of the world ever. And then, like after I was there, like six or eight months, then Little John came, took over my work area, and then I moved out to the main shop. And Little John moved his machines, and like I was kind of the catalyst between. Uh, telling Boyd he should bring Little John back since he Little John does all the stuff and kind of invented all the stuff that Boyd does. Like, why don't you just have him here? And like, you know, and I think John was losing his lease at the Huntington Beach shop or something like that and got tired and, you know, wanted to just kind of get paid to do what he does. And so it was like, if I wanted to play baseball and I was a young kid that wanted to learn baseball and i had like babe ruth ty cobb like willie mays dream team <laughs> at all these people surrounded surrounding me and like teaching me and everybody and you know i'm big so i'm like six foot three and all these and like totally like to drink and fight and all this stuff <laughs> like none of these guys are motorcycle guys and i'm a motorcycle guy and they wanted to make motorcycle parts so that was kind of my end but it was just you know I still think about that stuff every day, you know, like I really, sometimes I feel like I'm being an ogre for my guys. Cause like pushing them and pushing the limits of the stuff we do, but you know, it's hard to convey what I've seen, what my eyes have seen, you know, you know, and like what, 
you know, it, it was just great. We had fun. Like we, you know, SEMA in the heyday of SEMA in the mid nineties where Boyd had a whole airplane hangar, you know, it was right at that bubble before wheels started being made overseas because at the time you couldn't get sh- anything made overseas. It was just, it was crap. It was like Western wheel cast weird, you know, nothing that anybody would put on any of their cars. It was like pet boys wheels were the only thing that were made in China. And then, so Boyd was the biggest wheel manufacturer in the world. And so we'd go into SEMA and you had this huge aluminum riveted airplane hanger in the middle of SEMA where the booth was. And then, you know, we'd add a dealer show for motorcycle stuff and Daytona and Sturgis and Laconia and just, you know, all these hot rod shows. And it was just, it was just crazy, crazy times, crazy thing to step into, you know, and that's definitely the heyday. We caught Boyd in like 2001, 2002. We went out there. We wanted to experience California. You know, coming from the Midwest, there's not really shit going on here. So we went out to California, toured a bunch of hot rod shops, and spent some time in Boyd's shop. And yeah, that was right about the time the American hot rod thing was going. So totally, a couple of those old dudes were still kicking around there. But man, even then, it was like larger than life. That fucking place was so rad. You imagine yeah. trying to do that in today's day and age with the amount of shops and social media and stuff like that. I mean, at that point, like, you know, you if you're on the come up, like you said, you're going to be there and you're going to be, you want to play for the Yankees, you know, and it's, there's no other baseball teams around. Everybody's going to work for Boyd. <clears throat> that, ha- that would have to be, you know, per- perfect timing. Look at how many businesses have been started from ex-Boyd employees like myself, Chip, Dan Fink you know, little John, like all this stuff, like he was, you know, and Boyd wasn't really a worker. I think he was a painter at one time he worked at Disneyland, but, or Knott's Berry Farm, but he, like the only time I ever seen him work, we were hot and heavy trying to finish a car for Roadster Show. And uh, we were working all night and we'd been there like probably for a week straight. And like some Japanese film crew came in and wanted to film some stuff with him. And he went and chucked up like a piece of, four inch billet aluminum in the lathe and like acted like he was turning it down for the cameras. And it's the time I ever (laughs) seen him work, you know, but he, he just had this incredible eye, you know, like he was always right when he said something like, Hey, even bike stuff, which he didn't really know, like, Hey, you should move that down a quarter inch. And if, you know, you would be bummed and everything. And Chip used to fight him on stuff like that. But then when you did it, when you cut it apart and rewelded it and moved it a quarter inch, it made all the difference. You know, he just had that kind of, that kind of eye for stuff, you know? So. And I wonder what, where the eye went when the 57 Chevy bike came around. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the glasses were off for that one. (laughs) That was much later in the career, but. No, I think that was Scott Sullivan. Like actually we, I have the third, we, they did actually have a picture of it sitting on my desk, ironically, but they did, when they did Cadzilla, they did two Harley. They kind of had that nineties Cadillac taillight and had this full nacelle that went over the thing. They did, uh, two of them to like escort Cadzilla. And then we did a third one on a rigid frame and Craig Naff did all the bodywork and everything. And Craig was there like right when I started and he's an amazing metal guy. And that one never got finished. And I ended up buying it. I got it. Look at a picture of it sitting on my desk right here, just for no reason. And that's like my house in front of my 
Look at the Astro nice, van. Dude. That's badass. <laughs> you don't see the Astro vans that much anymore. No, that's those a, were, that was big. Disappeared. Vans got 17s. <laughs> yeah. How was it working with all those uh, guys who were the best of the best at the time? Their egos, is everybody willing to work together, show you, bring you up? The good team environment? Uh, great team. Everybody had their own little place. And like I said, I was there for a month before anybody could talk to me or would talk to me or give me the time of day. And uh, I remember I was back in this back welding room and I was TIG welding someone and like Steve Greninger who's one of the greatest like final assembly fit finish and especially electrical guys that I've ever seen. He came up and hit the table, bam, did the hammer test when I was welding. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like then you're in now you're cool. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we do that. We just tape like little firecracker. You snip one off the pack and you tuck it on the inside of like a corner weld, like on a frame rail or something. That's a good break in procedure. You're dragging a bead, and then when that fucker pops, that <laughs> helmets the, go flying. Yeah, it's got the same kind of bang as the hammer trick. Frame with aerosol spray paint while at their weld. <laughs> <laughs> You're just gonna blow past the uh, settling bombs and stuff. Yeah, you know those today's day and age. Those are <laughs> frowned upon. I think. Where did the so in the midst of all that? You were a bouncer too. You did like, you've had a fucking colorful career, man. I mean, the shit you've done is, you're like the most interesting man in the world with all the. But cool, like the real one. Yeah, but like the real deal, <laughs> all the cool shit you've done. Cause you were, you were bouncing for like dancing, weren't you? Yeah, before starting in the late 80s, I started, I mean, well, actually, it goes back to starting when I was like, 14, 15 years old. Cause I was a big kid. And so I got a job, actually my first security job. I worked at this comic book store in Hollywood called golden apple comics by this dude named Bill Leibowitz, who was kind of this legendary, like he owned this comic book store in Melrose. And then he gave me a job in high school on the weekends, like for book signings and like artist signings and stuff like that. And so I would just basically just sitting there making sure no one stole stuff. But I was like a huge comic book. If you look in my office, like my wall in my office is all comic book artwork and all Robert Williams and all that stuff. So I always been a huge like comic book kid. And so he used to like half pay me and half give, let me pick stuff up, <laughs> you know? So, but that starting working at golden apple. And then I started working uh, for a guy named Gary Tovar who, uh, was golden voice so he was like the biggest like punk rock promoter in southern california and like gary was cool as hell and like he always paid me and never ever tried to stiff me and some other promoters you know that i worked for they would always try to like change the price and stuff and like turns out gary was like a huge drug smuggler and doing working with the indonesian government <laughs> and so, nice. like i guess they're doing some about it or so they wanted to interview me but, <laughs> but that security work and then eventually like when i turned 18 like uh i had worked for some did some private security work for a company and like i had worked for deborah harry in downtown la when she was doing a comeback record at this place called the variety art center for a month i had to live with her for a month and then i worked for I got hired by Madonna 
to like live at her house in Malibu or Sean Penn's house because he was threatening her. So I was there for a month. And that that kind of stuff is okay. It's just sitting a lot of sitting around. It's not that much fun, you know. But then I ended up uh, working for Glenn Danzig was looking for a new travel security guy. The band Danzig was getting pretty big and they were coming out with the second album. And he like it was pretty funny. Like he a friend of mine was Gary Tobar's best friend and partner, this guy named Greg Link. I know him by Otis, but he was like living in my grandparents' house. And Greg used to sell, make all the t-shirts for uh, Golden Voice. All this stuff's connected with like the security and making t-shirts and marketing and all that stuff. It all like kind of laid the bricks for what I do, you know, but Greg, word on the street that Glenn was looking for a new security guy. Well, like Glenn wanted to hook up and meet me and see if I was into it and stuff. And it was funny because he like, we met at the palace one night and like, I don't remember what happened, but I had this huge gash with all these stitches on my arm. <laughs> like, and I had like a white beater shirt on and a shaved head and I go meet him and I'm like, just blood oozing from my arm. And like, I guess he liked it cause he hired me and like, uh, <laughs> I toured with him and, you know, tell for five or six years and we're still friends. He was here, here a couple of weeks ago. He had like a movie premiere in Austin and he just, I didn't have the greatest father figure growing up, but I definitely came of age and became an adult literally on the road with, with Glenn, you know, and Glenn's like a real, he would probably say I was gay or something if I said this to his face. <laughs> but he is really a father figure and I really owe a lot to him. He's really a great guy. And like, you know, he's the guy that'll, he'll play a crazy show and then he'll stay outside by the bus and sign stuff till two in the morning and sign stuff and take pictures with every single kid, every single night, you know? And it's like, he always, he comes off as like a tough guy or a hard ass, but he's really, really a great dude. And like, really like kind of, I don't know. I mean, before I met him, I kind of only knew how to like beat people up and like play football. I didn't, you know, I had a little bit of metalworking skills and had the desire for that stuff. But, and then, so the six years, seven years, five, six, seven years, I was on the road with him. I just went to every single motorcycle show, every car show, every hot rod show all over the world. We spent most of that time in Europe. And so I was in shows in Sweden and France and Germany. And so I kind of like, I think built and developed my style for what I liked while I was touring with bands. And then, you know, I ended up wanting to do something else. I just couldn't, I loved being at home and working on my bikes when I wasn't on the road. And I worked at this bar called the doll hut, which is like this legendary bar by Disneyland as, as the bouncer and the bartender it is like this little punk rock bar that only holds 43 people. And just, I was, you know, I kind of liked doing that and working on my bikes all day and making stuff and, you know, kind of all that time, you know, 89, 92 kind of started the brand of West Coast Choppers, but, you know, it really didn't put full effort into it until I left Boyd's and like started it on my own. But like, think, you know, I ended up working for Rick Rubin and worked for a lot of other bands and like did all the stuff, you know, kind of a 
security consultant for Rick Rubin. And you got to have some fucking stories about those. I worked with Mix a lot during the whole <laughs> album release tour for Baby Got Back. And it was like, <laughs> <laughs> they'd have private parties and it was this huge 20 foot tall ass and you had to walk the legs. To get, <laughs> not one picture of that anywhere. You know, there was no one took pictures of anything there. All he had was a little snap stuff, you know, or, you know, you just, nobody took pictures. Like, I just want one picture. Like, look, ah! <laughs> one's going to pop up, come back to haunt you and that with that giant ass. Works <laughs> <you know? laughs> for NWA and body count and a lot of other bands, you know, and, and it, it seems when I think back of all of it and all the stuff I did, it was such a fast pace. It kind of seems like it's not real. You know, it seems like, how did I do all that stuff? You know, like it doesn't, I don't know. It's crazy. What's the realest, the realest it ever got on the road with any of these bands where it was time to throw down and it was like, what's the sketchiest situation that you've ever been in on, on that part bodyguard side. Oh, there's too many to count. I mean, Glenn was the other night. We were in London, England, and played some played some show, and then went to some club afterwards. And some chick got in his face or something, and then like, uh, I don't know if she worked there, or whatever. But they we went in. We were only there for a couple minutes, and they kicked us out. And it was kind of upstairs, and we're going out, and this like bouncer. Glenn went ahead of me, this bounce like, boom, pushed me down the stairs from behind <laughs> and like face first, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and like, I got up and like, I hammer fisted him. Like I hit him with it, boom, on his jaw and like hung his jaw, bam. <laughs> like, <laughs> bro, sides of the jaw. Well, England and most other places in the world aren't like innocent. You know, there's no, if you do that to someone, you're going to go to, prison for it you know so we like we like jumped went to our hotel boom checked out grabbed all our stuff went to an, like another hotel like on the other side of the city checked in under assumed name comic book artist names i think i checked in <laughs> under frank miller then was jack <laughs> and like you know barely made it out of there cops everything were looking for us you know and and it you know just Back when there was no camera phones then, so you could still you get away fight. With shit. If I did that before, you know, that guy's the bouncer. He works there. So whatever, he's going to say he didn't push me, you know, and there would be security footage or whatever, but not in those days. You could still sport, get away with it, you know. I mean, I dislocated my elbow off the stage at a show at Harpo's in Detroit came off that stage after someone and like landed on my arm and bent my arm out of back and shattered my forearm and everything. That's kind of what made me quit. Cause I had stayed on the road for like another three months after that, you know, and I had like one of these things yeah. and like, I just was like burnt and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to stay home and build some bikes. And, you know, I was making hundred grand a year. I'm doing really well. I didn't have a house. I didn't have any overhead. I didn't have wife or kids or nothing. And when I quit all that stuff to build motorcycles, like everybody thought I was insane because it's like to get a job in 1992, 93, 
like, oh yeah, I'm going to make some gas tanks and fenders and like weld some shit together. That wasn't what, that wasn't a good like career decision. That's like what stoners did. And like, it wasn't, yeah, everybody thought I was nuts. And so that's, I went to Covell's and like worked at performance machine and like really kind of like did my homework for it, you know? Like I remember having to ask before I got hired at performance machine, this was my dad's friend. They hired me for 15 bucks an hour. I had to ask my mom if that was good. Is that good pay? Should I take that? <laughs> like, you know, I didn't, I just didn't know aside from my dad working for bands, which I kind of was a contractor. So I worked for myself, but like hot performance machine and hot rods by void is the only two jobs I've had really where they were like a five day, six day a week job. You know, it's, Funny, I got a couple of. I'm making notes because this is like got so many things I want to ask. But you you made mention of when you decided to go build motorcycles and you know weld metal and doing all this kind of shit that the public looked at you like you were crazy, you know, because that was a thing like you said stoners did, you know. And it's interesting that you just said that when you're so instrumental in changing that mentality of that said profession, you know. And you 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 just touched on the fact that what that profession looked like, you know, and whether they whether they learned how to be welders or not, I, I remember going through it, um, and I was working some land development stuff at the time on the side when I was still building cars. And I mean, was around a lot of a lot of bankers, a lot of lawyers, um, a lot of real estate agents that in that time were like, "Fuck yeah, West Coast Choppers, Iron Cross, we're going to be fucking badasses." And they loved, and they were learning all the terminology because of the television shows, right? And these were guys that would have looked down on anybody in that profession two years prior, you know, but now it's fucking cool. And how many guys went to trade school, say what you want to about where the trade schools are at right now. But in that era, in that time, I mean, we've got guys working for us right now and I, we, we meet them all over the country. Then, then you sitting there and talking to them, have drinks. They're like, yeah, I mean, fucking motorcycle mania. And they see that you put basically a lifestyle with whether it was all real or not. Whether, whether any of these guys were going to achieve what you were showing on this show, you know, uh, that's, that's what got them into the industry and why they're still in the industry. It, so my point being is it's funny that you mentioned that you getting into it, it was looked down upon, and yet you were so instrumental in changing the mentality of that said profession. So thanks for that. Yeah, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know if it was, I mean, thought about during it. It was just, you know, having a fucking good time. But I was just trying to build stuff honestly i didn't ever really think you know i was work like obviously i just told you i was working at a bar at night because i didn't have any money and i'm really like i don't know like i just someone just sent me an old, old ad from a bike i built and it was like one of the last bikes i built in my garage and uh i sold it for like thirty thousand bucks in like 1996 <laughs> like which was like that i was like I don't know. That's like a six figure car today. You know, that was pretty good money, but you know, it had a Patrick billet motor and stuff like that. So it's expensive parts. I was just, I remember when I worked at performance machine and when I left, we did like a year tally and they had paid me like $23,000 for the year for my taxes. That's what I had. But then I looked at how much I, how much parts and stuff I had bought. I had bought like tw like two, like twenty six thousand in parts that year. <laughs> like, <laughs> I spent more than they were. 
you know, there because I was building stuff, you know, so. That's crazy. But I don't know. It just, it like, I think it is really cool that so many people are into it now. And like, uh, I just look at uh, like just power hammer stuff or like planishing hammer stuff, just the hammer stuff with Jeremy's into, you know, Jeremy done stuff with Faye and that. And it's just like literally before Faye, there was only one person that did stuff and it was John Glover and he was like an old power hammer guy. And I had his like VHS tapes and I wore them out like watching them just cause you know, I had a power, I bought my first power hammer in 97 and I didn't even know how to use it. I just bought it from watching his stuff and knowing like, that's what I want. I want to learn how to do that. You know, like, and it, it just, I don't know. Like it's, I have been, I don't know. It wasn't, none of the stuff was planned. I just kind of like the leaf in the stream doing what I want to do and like want stuff and want stuff a certain way and then figure out how to do it. Like even at Boyd's, you know, Boyd's wasn't, Boyd's could do anything, but also like Marcel's is who's Boyd's always leaned on to make a body. Like, you know, Craig Naff made the whole, smoothster body of steel and Larry Erickson design and then Craig did like Shazoom that Chevy and a couple other cars but most of the stuff after that was kind of went to Marcel's and so I would always volunteer to go out there like we have to pick something up or drop it off or Chip had to go out there and measure something or whatever and I was go going out there and like I'm at the best hot rod shop in the whole world, but I love going to Marcel's. <laughs> like I just couldn't yeah. wait to go up because they had the real stuff that I really wanted to be doing. You know, I could machine and weld and run a mill and a lathe and all this stuff, but I wanted to go where the metal shaping was. That to me, that was like the magic and seeing their and Marcel's at the time. I mean, Luke is kind of all hot rods now, like the stuff he does for Rick door. And, but his dad, you know, was more of a, you know, he did a lot of cars for Leno and Pebble Beach, like, you know, uh, Bugattis and Piercero's and stuff like that. You know, like those type of restorations were just making it where they had like a little piece of the cow and he makes everything else, you know. and Real deal coach building shit back then, yeah. First gas tank that I really made, like, I just made a buck out of plywood, like, kind of like a Sportster tank. I still have that buck. It's still my favorite tank. And I kind of was out there. This is probably 94, three, four. And I was out at Marcel's when they were in Corona and like Luke was helping me shape the panels and Luke kind of got a little snippy with me. And he's like, Hey, why don't you just make this fucking thing yourself? He's like, you can do it. You have the skills to do it. Just do it yourself. Make your own goddamn tank. And like kind of sent me out of there. And like, he gave me what I needed, you know, I needed because I have this, like a lot of, I think a lot of fabricators and people that make stuff, I have this, even though I know I've made stuff like this before, I have this fear that I can't do it, you know, or I don't trust my own skills or my own knowledge and stuff like that. And it's like this huge roadblock that, you know, and then I make something like I just finished this tank for a bike i'm building now out of copper and i was like holy shit look how good i am <laughs> you know like <laughs> i'm surprised by it like you know like it it 
I don't know. Like, I guess thinking about it now in this context, it, maybe it's a good thing that I surprised myself and I like still am stoked about it, you know, like, but you know, Marcel's was kind of the, who pushed me into getting into like heavier fab, heavier metal work, you know? Yeah. He was always, I mean, that dude was so badass. I, I was fortunate to work a bunch with clay cook. You remember clay? Yeah. I knew clay clay yeah. made my, my first Yoder. He made a bunch of anvils and tools and stuff for it. Yeah. So I've got clay's hammer now, but that was, that was like the turning point from, I was doing all sorts of English wheel stuff and it's like slow and you can't like move shit quickly and it's quiet. And clay was the dude who had like, kind of a, a little bit of a production mindset on metal shape and that he, he was like a tool freak. So I'd you know, spend days with him and man, the shit he'd teach me was just, I mean, forever. I'll like, that's clay. Would, you can't put a price on clay it. would spend a year and a half designing the tool to build the part. Yeah. You know, versus building right. the part. <laughs> clay was, clay was a good dude. Yeah. I have Marcel's, hammer too he had an old petting gill on a yoder base that sat in the corner for years and i'm like why don't you ever use that he's like oh it's too loud it's terrible like i can't stand it like because they had like eccles and uh you know and i he's like what you i go you want to sell it? he's like yeah he gave me a price i'm like boom i'll take it i have that in my shop today still it's over at the other shop so yeah I can relate with the too loud thing. Fucker shakes the office, the foundation of the shop's moving. You get <laughs> someone else in the air hammer. And yeah. Forging with the big hammer. The big hammer has a thousand pound head on it. Good so grief. like, yeah, you thing. can hit down the road. Like it's crazy. <laughs> Making earthquakes in Austin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted a damn power hammer like my whole life, my entire career. And finally I got to the point where I could afford one. And you don't was, get to use it. Yeah, it was just about the time where I got so much shit going on that I don't get to use it. So, but you get to hear but it. But I get to look at it and I get to hear it, and every once in a while, I'll run a piece of metal through it. But you'll get to it and want to eventually go back to work. Yeah, because <laughs> being a mid-level manager of a, a chassis manufacturer, it'll get old. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> Man, I don't know. It's it's all kinds of fun. <laughs> I did it for twenty plus years, you know, and like the last probably seven or eight years that I was in Long Beach, I was just like, you know, there's 200 people there and I was just worried about who's stealing toilet paper and how come we're spending a hundred grand a year on packing foam and, you know, moved here and got rid of everything in my life that got in the way of like me using my hands or working, you know, and less money, less business, but more happiness, you know. What drove you to make that move? Cause that's a, that's got to be a tough thing when you've got that kind of business and you got the sales and you got the reputation to just like back it down. I mean, how did you? In- well, the, I mean, it wasn't like the mortgage crisis in 08 kind of like took everybody's cause everybody was using their house as a ready teller. They'd refinance it and get cash and they were buying bikes and cars and boats and all this stuff. And my business like rode the wave of that for a decade. And then once that stuff started backing down and happening, I was like, Oh yeah, it's gonna, you know, it's going to happen. And I just saw, I took a road trip in 2006 or seven with my son. We took a motorcycle trip up to Northern California 
And then we came back down and I stayed at Cole Foster's house and Cole just has a really cute little 1940s two, two bedroom bungalow, but with like a 6,000 square foot, two story shop behind it. And like at the time I had seven buildings and a couple hundred thousand square feet under, I had a whole city block in Long Beach and all these businesses and deal with Walmart and all these brands and everything. I could not st- stop thinking about that house with the garage behind it. I was like, just man, I want that. I just want to get up and go to work and not have to deal with bullshit. And like, I couldn't stop thinking about it until, you know, I kind of went through that whole tabloid scandal and everything. And I'm like, if I need a bigger sign to get out of California, I'm not going to get it. This is it. And just sold stuff and found a place here. And I moved 17 semi trucks to Austin, Shit. you know, and, and just, just did it. And like, kind of, definitely culture shift, you know, Long Beach, my whole life. And like, really my whole life was like a five miles radius, but I had moved here part-time and bought a house in 2004 when, uh, my, I came here with my ex and then, you know, been here, been here for 18 years now. So now it's getting crazy. It's getting crowded here, but yeah, everybody's fucking moving to Austin. Yeah, he invited Cole down and show him what's up with the new pad. Yeah, uh, yeah, he came. Well, he came down. I don't know, six or eight years ago, we did some TV stuff together. So coming by your place, we were down there, like Josh said, a year ago or something, and you know, we got the same thing going here. We're like three buildings, hundred thousand square feet, and like there you are, just in your fucking badass garage, hammered away on shit that's yeah, shooting know, in the bullet yeah, trap own, out back. Own, I'm like, fuck projects. yeah, let's do that. We Dude, that's shoot. like it's like paradise, you know that. I could get used to that. Yeah, I can work more. I can spend more time with Sonny. I can like rest more, you know, and like it's just a more efficient way to do what I do. You know, I think it, you know, yeah, sometimes I think having a retail store and stuff like that would be because everybody wants to come here and I don't really, because of firearm stuff, it's a little dicey letting people in the shop because, you know, we have gun stuff everywhere and you can't really ATF per the ATF. We have to keep it locked down, you know, which I'm not mad at cause I get more work done, less distraction, but you know, we had that retail store at the Long Beach shop and it was like Disneyland, but you know, I can imagine it was a majority of your business. Like on paper, how much was apparel versus actual bike builds? Oh, you know, I don't know. I could, at the height of everything, I was selling about two hundred twenty-five thousand t-shirts a week at Walmart. Holy shit! Yeah, that's I mean, a back, couple. Back that's in a couple. that era, even today, it's like you can't drive like a block without seeing a West Coast Choppers cross in the back yeah. of somebody's pickup truck. It's a global brand, you know. In two thousand two, I opened up. Uh, I started manufacturing in Europe just to cater to the Europe and Asia Pacific market, and that business has over the years has become so efficient that now that that's where my hub is in Rotterdam, Holland, and we ship everywhere in the world from Holland. You know, we have our whole center, distribution center, everything in Rotterdam. And so you order a t-shirt in Illinois, it's $11 shipping and it's there in three days. That's wild. Just talking about Holland and Europe, this is completely from the outside looking in and I'm not at all educated on what I'm fucking talking about. And so preface that. But 2022 you, Josh. 2022 Josh. That's right. Tell the truth. Uh, you mentioned, you know, 
while you're traveling around with Danzig and, and, and spending so much time in Europe, you're, you're creating this style in your head, you know? Um, and then, and that, that stuck with me. I even kind of wrote it down here, make a note. It's funny. You say that, that like, I've never thought about it, never even wondered why, but in that era, when you're, when you're coming up and you you're, you're breaking every fucking magazine blown wide open, you've got these easy riders. You've, you had the traditional American chopper in air quotes, you know, um, custom motorcycles. Just, and you you had, just compared them to American. No, no, no. I mean, American is okay. not, not in the show. Absolutely <laughs> not. No, no. Uh, the, the, just the words, you know, so you had like the Arlen Ness, you had that kind of style, you had that Well, Then you've got Jesse James, which is, you know, a completely different look that as you say it, you know, this European influence, which you've made your own, you know, and you've, you've also brought in that kind of outlaw culture, you know, the, the motorcycle club culture that was not so much of the custom molded fiberglass, everything in, you know, um, it's, it's funny you say that the Netherlands and the European, and now your hub is there and you're selling more shirts over the, it's, it's funny how it comes full circle. You, you know, you took a little bit of style there, brought it to America and it kind of circled back around. West Coast Choppers is fully trademarked and protected in China. <laughs> that's like, like that's not. I bet so that was much. hard to do with China. It took eleven years to get the trademarks, uh-huh. and yeah, I think like I just have a, a fiend. Like I never forget anything I see. You know, like uh, I can remember like an Indian I saw in probably 1989 or 1990 at a rock festival at Roskilde, Denmark, which was like the biggest rock festival at the time. And it was like an Indian chief without the fenders. It just had bobbed fenders. And he took the guard off the generator and you could see it was idling. The belt was spinning around right by your ankle. And I just remember looking at that bike, like, holy shit, that's, I love that bike. Like I still, like, I remember that bike that day when I saw it, it was like overcast and barely raining. And like every, all these segments in my life, like have these reference points and it always seems to be like vehicles, you know? And like my style didn't come out of anywhere. I, I made checklists. Like I hate that, hate that. I love that. Love that. Hate that. Hate, you know what I mean? Like everything I see, you know, at a swap meet or a bike show or a car show or anything like that, it all kind of like put it together. Like what I like, you know? And I don't know. I'm just, I'm just lucky. Well, I think that's, that's what, that's what makes it authentic is because nothing is authentic. No matter what you do, everybody that's an artist or creator pulls a little bit from here and there and here and there and here and there. And you're not, you're not copying, you're not doing anything, but you've, those things, like you said, you remember it to this day, all the senses, the smell, the, the time of day, the, the fact that it was a little bit raining and everything that that did for you and that, that imprinted on you. Um, so there is, there is no authenticity. Everybody's just their own version of authentic. I got a prime example of that because like back in mid 2000s i wanted a west coast choppers dominator like nobody's fucking business but you're six three you know i'm not quite that big you know i'm about (laughs) five two and a half maybe at the time maybe 130 pounds i'm like dude that fucking bike is so rad but i'm gonna look like a a child on one of those and there's no way i could afford one either so i 
I started building this, so I got a picture today because I got to show you this fucker. I mean, it's a blatant copy scaled down like to my size. So it's now like 15 years later, just <laughs> about. I was like, oh, building bikes is easy. I built hot rods. Like, so this thing, it's like a miniature Jesse James bike that I started when I was like in my 20s. And it's almost done. But it's 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 pretty badass, dude. I want to see it. Yeah, I'll text this to you, but they're uh yeah, it it's, seems it's, like bikes it seems like bikes should be easier because it's less metal, less motor, less everything, but for some reason it's I don't know if it's more technical. It's way harder to do it the right way, I think. Like we're just finishing up, we just sent it to final finish the bike I'm building for Dana White, and I've been working on it for a couple of years. And like, I don't know, like to me, bikes, guns, cars, bikes is the most critical for me because I'm known for doing bikes. And so I can't crank out shit that's not up to my standards and like kind of having a shop where the guys, you know, good guys, great guys in my shop, but they don't really, they have, they weren't around in the early two thousands at the heyday with all this crazy stuff that we did. So kind of like getting their brains and their skills up to speed, you know, and like, they're doing really good, but it like car stuff we're doing. Well, if a wheel falls off a car, you just pull over and call AAA. <laughs> well, if it falls off a bike, you don't really have to you call, call anybody. You don't call <laughs> shit. Yeah. You don't call shit. You get a flat on a bike. It's going to get pretty Western and you're going to good chances. <laughs> good. Probably percentage going to die it's going to be you know and i think taking that knowing that you know we could kid about it but it's serious and you have to take everything really critical especially my frame manufacturing like i really like man sweat the details on all of it and sweat the geometry and like i know you guys do that too but like bike stuff seem and everything you do is tucked up and hidden it's nice but you're never Unless you lay on the ground, you're never going to see it. A motorcycle frame for a full custom bike that I build, you can't hide any of it. <laughs> like it's right there in your face. There. Yeah. And if it's, if it's shit, it's shit. And there's no way of like hiding it or anything like that. And so, but yeah, I learned all that stuff like right quick. I was like, dude, I mean, but it's two wheels, it's half the parts. It's, it's got to be way easier. No, it's so not. Even to the point, like, I wanted it done to such a high level that I ended up, get, when it's ready for, like, final fit and assembly, I just gave it to my buddy Bill Steele, who's ba mm. badass at that stuff, because I'm like, I know I'm not going to do it as good as he will, and I want it really <laughs> nice. So I did my part, like, built the frame, built the fender, built the tank, like, everything's scratch built, so I got to bring it across the finish line properly. Yeah, but, yeah. you need it. Go for a ride. For sure. If it ever gets done, we'll see. It's been like 20 years. Another couple. Maybe it'll be on the road. <laughs> Have it done for Indy. Good guys. Yeah. Let's kiss yeah, it Indy good now, I think the motorcycles, it's, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but there's just so few parts and like everything is, like you said, out in the open that you probably have to analyze everything way more and make every single thing super badass and, you know, you're much smaller proportions. So you've got a lot more detail to play with. Whereas a car, you can have a badass body and, you know, under the hood might not be that great and you get a pass on it. The bike, it's kind of like everything is judged all as one and you got to nail it all. Well, 
I think more it's custom bike builders. There's a lot of people over the last like 25 years or so that like they justify the stuff that they put on a bike by the price they paid for it. So, okay. Pro one or one of these manufacturers makes this real expensive front end. So that must be the good one. Let's put that on it. But I kind of, I don't know. I just have this certain look and this certain style and this certain way I want things. And probably because of this knowledge in my head about all of it that, you know, one, I don't want to give anybody else any credit for the badass stuff on our bike, but me and my shop, you know, I want them to see like a badass headlight and triple clamps and front end setup and like, Oh, where'd you get that? Oh, I made it, you know? And I've been saying that for since I was 19 or 20 years old, like, where'd you get, where'd you buy that at? I made it. Bullshit. You didn't make that. Yeah, I did. I made it. And I, I think that's an addiction. I'm addicted to that. I'm like, to the point where I almost don't get shit done all the time because I say, Oh, I'm going to make it. I can make that. I have the skills to make that, which is a blessing and a curse because I can make anything. I could, I, the microwave broke. I took it apart and fixed it. <laughs> just, you know, like it, I just like, I don't know. Particular. I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just love to be able to say I did it and not, you know, yeah, we use other parts. We use Brembo and performance machine and SNS motors and things like that, but I don't really want to, uh, you know, it's a West coast choppers. It should be all West coast choppers. You know, it's like a roadster shop car. It should be all a roadster shop. Yeah. Yeah. We get the same mentality with that. The cars and the bikes are, are crazy. Cause there's, I can name like, I could go on for 20 minutes naming badass car builders of guys who I know build like killer shit. Bikes, I feel like the thing that you've nailed, and I don't know if you put like any thought into this, but it's how you sit on a bike, how you look on the bike, how the, like how so many dudes build these bikes that you just look like a total douche going down the fucking road. And that's (laughs) like, I can't hardly name, like, honestly, I can't, I don't think I can name you more than, two bike builders that are <laughs> you don't you don't need to be laying on the tank but you need to be stretching across the tank and everybody just like f- fucks that up i always have this theory the bike and rider are one thing and that starts with the frame so the frame has got it and we this what we do for customers like you're five foot two so we could well, or five, actually five foot six. I was just, six, you know, I'm kind of, I'm actually pretty yeah, fucking five, big, five, dude. But, five, five. Yeah. But go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. His skinny jeans don't bend that Fuck well. You. <laughs> it to your palm measurement and then your inseam measurement and then seated measurement. And we build your frame based on your size. And so we can move stuff around in quarter inch increments. So you're not have to, you're not getting a bike and having to, like I'm building a bike for a guy right now that's five, four. He's a doctor in California and everything will fit him. Everything's done. So when he sits on it, he just like plops right on and it's like, boom, it's perfect. He doesn't have to adjust the bars or anything because we've already done all that and built it in. And to the extreme, like I built a bike for Shaq. Now I did Shaq's bike before CAD design, you know, in the early, late, like 2000. And so what I did is I took a picture of him. I like before digital cameras, I had like the Sony Mavico with the floppy disks. I took the camera and took pictures of him seated on the bike with his feet propped up on blocks, like at a good seated position. And then 
I took dividers on the TV screen with the reference point and divided everything and built the whole bike tank, everything proportionally to him. Now the bike looks obnoxious when you're sitting there, but when seven foot three, 305 pound shack sits on it, it, he looks normal. It looks like a normal bike, normal person sitting on it. But now when you measured, when you measured that doctor's inseam, that was with regular pants. If you measured Jeremy's inseam, those would be on skinny jeans. So that would be a completely different measurement, right? Yeah, you'd get a more accurate measurement because you're not like super fucking baggy. He, can't, he probably needs regular forward controls because he can't bend his knee. <laughs> and that's what I put on there, dude. When I built, when I did my bike, I put the two fucking wheels on the table, put the motor on the table, and then I just took pictures of myself sitting with bars until I, until it all made sense. So you didn't, I didn't want to look like the dude with the big bear chopper, you know, that's backing into the bar. Yeah. You know, that guy, American iron horse. Yeah. Or whatever it is, the (laughs) affliction fucking jeans, the crazy boots and that. Square toes. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to give me some of them pants with the flaps over the pockets and the the big stitching down the side. That's what I'm talking about. That's the look. Careful, yep. you're building a bike for Dana White. He made a lot of money there with Reflection and all that shit for, for quite some time. <laughs> Dude, his bike's badass. That, yeah, that sent me sweet. a picture. That thing, that bike is that just totally different style. That bike is unreal. Dominator, but it like stainless. I mean, it took a year to engrave the frame. So, you know, yeah, we're just having fun. I love it. Talking about uh, a little bit on the TV side of things, what what are your thoughts now looking back after 20 some odd years of how the TV car builds, bike builds, how has that changed the industry to where we're at right now? Um, good or bad? Uh, well, I mean, we just finished that year season of monster garage, but discovery kind of just hired me as a ringer to do that and bring it back for one season to promote their app. So they could have, and they got 58 million people signed up for the app and basically used that cash to buy AT&T. So <laughs> good move. I'm the ringer, you know, like I, I'm fully comfortable. I'm like, I could either be on TV or not. I don't care. It doesn't have. And like, I think now people are almost to the point where they'll, they'll pay to be on TV. You know, it used to be like, the cream of the crop, like the best. Like when I, in 1999, when I first started filming for discovery, uh, discovery channel went to all the motorcycle magazines, easy riders, hot bike, American iron, uh, hot rod bikes, all of them, I think five or six magazines and six out of six, they said they wanted a no bullshit story, how a bike gets built from scratch. And six out of six said, you got to go see Jesse. Jesse's the guy. And like, I didn't really see value in it. Like, I don't know. I did like speed vision. I did a thing with them and I did like a little bit of local TV and like, but that was it. And it didn't really move the needle in my life at all. And just, I don't know, it was cable and I didn't really want to do it. They wanted to film for a month. I was like, and we were getting ready for Daytona and I'm just like, man, I got too much shit to do right now. I don't really know if I have can do this. And then we did it and it just, it was crazy. And like, there was, I've like told the story before I was lucky too, in that respect. Cause, uh, had some really good producers and stuff like world renowned guys that did the very first documentary we did. And it, it just, 
it changed everything. Like we were selling stuff and selling bikes and shirts and all that stuff, but not compared to when that happened, you know? And it now I think TV, you know, it's entertainment. I know that. And my ego wants everything on TV to be some badass instructional video for stuff. Like all of us would like to watch, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. But reality is that I've had to accept is like, people watching it, even people at the network, they don't even really know, even at discovery, they don't even know what I do. <laughs> like they don't know my skill set or what I actually do. You know, they don't. So let a, then trying to audience, you know, I think some of this stuff that I forging and Damascus and metal forming and all this stuff, they don't, it kind of sails over people's heads, you know? And I think that kind of knowing that, not that I have to dumb my skill set down. It's just, I, I have to know that like, which is a good thing because it just means these skills and what I do is never going to be mainstream. It's never going to be like, I don't know, graphic design or something like that, where it's, it's, you know, everybody could do it, you know? Yeah. But I think it's, it's brought a lot to the mainstream and kind of put that in front of a lot of people and made it cool. And I think opened up our industry quite a bit. Yeah. You know, and like, even the stuff with like gas monkey, you know, whether you love or hate that dude, it's, it's just entertainment, you know? So I, I think some of it for me is unwatchable, like the street outlaws and stuff like that. It's just, so I'm a TV producer and I always executive produce all my own stuff. And it's hard for me to watch that stuff because it's so fake and staged. But like I said, people, at home aren't TV producers. So they don't know it's fake and stage. It's like, Oh my God, that guy just called him out. Holy shit. What's <laughs> you better win that. You've got shit. that Texas, Texas accent down after being there for a few years. <laughs> I can't expect everything that I look at or see to be up to my standards. You know, there's gotta be stuff for your basic, people that don't do this, don't do this type of stuff, you know? And it's, it's taken a long time for me to sec that, accept that. I was like, yeah, that's no shit. Get it away from me. You know, like you need to do more stuff like I like. And, you know, I, I mean, 23 years on TV, you know, I was the first. So, you know, the episodes of monster garage are awesome. The, the eight we did, but that's it. You know, I think we, ended that show on a really high note and did some amazing stuff. And those builds like the one we did with the roadster shop, little rampage, you know, to take the little economy sport pickup and go 207 miles an hour, you know, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and it was bad ass, bad. And ass. it was literally built in one week, you know, five days. Yeah. That's a bitch in a little car. Did you keep that thing? Hell yeah. <laughs> Are you going to take it out and rip it some more? I want to take it to Bonneville, but we got to do that thing, that C8 front. I got to put the different wheels and stuff on it. So, yeah. I mean, that, that fucking motor and everything, and that you could put that on the street, that thing should be, it's just pump gas, right? And you, uh, could you could tune it on pump gas. That, the ice cooling system and all that, it might be a little weird. Yeah. It's killer, yeah. killer little hot rod. Yeah. But I don't know what's going to happen with TV stuff. Like, I don't know. I'm not getting any younger, but I think like the rate I trickle myself onto TV now, I think it just leaves people wanting more, you know, I just, I'm really 
into work and the gun stuff I'm doing requires like a hundred percent focus. So like TV, like almost all of 2020 to take, just to do eight episodes of monster garage. If I'm the executive producer, I got to do all the pre-production, all the builds, all the planning, build the whole shop. You've been worried more about the talent and then like the style thing. That's the thing. That's your problem. You should have been worried more about the TV thing. Look how good it's worked out for the Tuttles. I mean, they were worried about the TV and look where they're at now. Well, but they didn't do anything before they were on TV. You know, they didn't like senior had the iron working business and, and junior didn't work there. Didn't do anything. They put it on TV. They offered me that show first. I turned it down. I was just like, I take bike building too serious to do a weekly show out of it and to dumb it down. And like, so I turned it down. So they offered it to them and they took it and that, that made they, you know, they wrote off the coattails of me doing these two documentaries that were the biggest shows in the history of discovery still. And like did it as a weekly version. I, instead I did cars and did monster garage because that's a bigger industry. And I thought it was more viewers and it was, but I think the misconception with them is thinking that like they're amazing builders and people are, they still believe it. I'm friends with both of them. Oh, These yeah. guys think it's so hard to listen to talk about it. Like, <laughs> all right. Those bikes are hunks of shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, they think everybody was buying these bikes for these amazing craftsmanship. No, they're buying TV time. They're buying, you know, like Geico isn't buying a bike yeah. for thousand dollars. Cause you guys are just amazing builders. No, they're buying the hour of TV time to get Geico, you know? And like, I think that was the harsh reality when their show ends, then look at what happened to their business. I mean, senior still does a little bit of stuff and, and Paul and junior's got a good little business, but look at my business when monster garage and all the TV is done is put me behind yeah, <laughs> like yeah, on, shit to build on regular work, you know? And like, I don't know. And I've always kind of like, I think that's just the dichotomy of the relationship with myself with TV. It's always like, yeah, I do it. And I think I'm pretty okay at it, but it's always like a nuisance, you know, it's always like getting in the way of what I should be doing. And out of all those TV shows, and I don't watch really anything current and I haven't in years, but the, uh, you and kid rock fucking ripping down those, highways in mexico on that motorcycle mania forever is like burned into my memory it's dude just, i was gonna quit my job just buy a motorcycle and just then i'd travel across the country and live that life that was <laughs> the fucking coolest shit we want to do another one you should see the stuff that we didn't put in the show that's the i can imagine <laughs> <laughs> they should recut that as like you know editor's cut yeah yeah we're in way down in chihuahua mexico and like what were we doing? It was like in the morning, we're supposed to get up and leave early and no one could find Bobby. And like, I'm like sitting in this restaurant or like the restaurant area of the hotel. And I have the two producers sitting with their backs to the window and you can see the main drag behind them sitting there. And they're like, look, this is bullshit. We got to find you. I'm like, I don't know, dude, I went and knock on his, knock on his door. See, have them call or give them an open. They're just like going off. Cause we're like an hour late. And everything and I know <laughs> and I know everybody was out partying the night before and like they're just like going on and on about how this isn't right and it's gonna cost production money and everything 
And here comes this like local Mexican dude with like a pickup with like the steer stickers on the side. And Bobby's standing up in the back of the truck. Going, <laughs> <laughs> I, I right behind them and I'm all, yeah, I don't know. Like, I have hopefully he turns up. Like, oh, shit. That's good stuff. <laughs> that had to be a good fucking time. What was that? A week? Week of recording? Uh, well, we filmed that show over a year, but yeah, we were in Mexico for like a week or so, I think. Damn. Yeah, we wanted to do another one. Actually, we want to do it. Uh, here's a small world. There's this dude named Manfred who's, whose nickname is The Surgeon. And when I toured in Europe, I had a, I, we got, the tours got so big. So I hired an assistant. I hired this dude named Manfred because he was Russian, but he spoke English or spoke English, German. And like, I think he spoke Dutch too, but he, uh, to this is in early 90s that dude's vladimir putin's bodyguard now <laughs> <laughs> nicknames the surgeon and he like is the head of this club called the night wolves coolest dude ever i love this guy and so bobby and i we were working on doing another motorcycle mania but riding across russia <laughs> that'd be pretty, is, that could be pretty dicey right now but it'd be <laughs> pretty, pretty good pretty TV. <laughs> people would watch it yeah, I think it'd be awesome. I just think like, like we go, talked about before the stuff that I like, I think Russia and especially China, I think there's a lot of craftsmanship and there's a lot of ingenuity and there's a lot of hand skills and stuff. And they don't put it out there because both of those countries want to project this image of being so technologically advanced and computers and CAD and all this stuff that they wouldn't show a guy, a black, a local blacksmith or you know, a, a knife maker or a body guy or any kind of stuff like that, because it's old timey and not the something that they want to promote. But I think like, that's my ulterior motive to go across Russia or China or something like that on a bike is to like find those guys, you know, find the craftsmanship. There's that you shit know? going on in China right now. What's like that? local, local blacksmiths and I mean, artisans and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, look at, you just look at the tattoo scene in china is like crazy artwork I, I love japanese and asian style tattoos but china's on this whole nother level of new style chinese dragons and stuff like that that's just it's you know and i i just the little bit that i've seen because both of those countries control the media so there's not a discovery channel and <clears throat> there's not profiles on business businesses and things like that you know and I think looking at the way Russian and Chinese guns are made, they're all by hand with really minimal tools and real minimal, you know, everything's riveted and made out of just whatever material and like, you know, and, and you know, you have to be a craftsman and you have to know tools and skills to, to pull that off, especially on a mass manufacturing level. Like I want to see the, the small little dude that fixes all of them, you know, where's he at? You got to get like one of those double holsters and pack two of those engraved Donald Trump 1911s you did when you, when you do that <laughs> tour, that'd be rad. <laughs> yep. So how do you keep coming up with new stuff? I mean, it's bikes, cars, pre-runners, guns, knives, 
titanium pizza cutters. And <laughs> where does all this stuff keep coming from? Is it just always trying to do know. something different? I think my biggest fear in life is that I'll die and not be able to make all the stuff that's in my head. Like I have so many ideas and so much stuff that uh, I just like, I don't know, really manpower hours in the day that type of stuff really limits what I can do. I really like Adam at the limit of like what I can actually do in a day. You know, I like every day I have is like planned out what I'm going to do the next day, what I'm going to work on, you know, and really I schedule all of it because I think I take on so much and so much stuff that I want to do. And luckily like I have a really great crew at the shop and really good guys. I like totally love all these dudes and like, you know, in my shop's next door, like, you know, half a mile away. So how do you maintain the motivation for that and the energy for doing it as long as you have and to have accomplished as much as you have and to be able to keep just like crushing it, doing shit like that? Because I think everybody from the outside looking in is intrigued, but I know I am. I mean, it's when the day is over here and I leave at seven o'clock, I'm like exhausted. You know, how do you, how do you keep rolling? I just, I mean, I work out every day, five days a week. I'm at the gym, 7am to 8am come home and I'm in the shop by nine. And then, you know, I only eat twice a day. I do intermittent fasting. So I eat at noon and then I'm an hour and about an hour late for dinner. (laughs) I think I haven't drank and next month will be 22 years or 23 years. And I don't really do any drugs. I take a little bit of CBD THC for old injuries and help me sleep, but I don't really have any other life. I don't have a lot of friends. This is it. I just work, you know, I like want to go and do stuff. And I want to like, I take Sundays off and Sundays is like my rest day to go to church and like, you know, do nothing. I just sit, I watch TV all day like feed my fish, (laughs) you know? And like, there's not much in life that I love more than what I do. And like, to the point where that's all I want to do. And like, you know, it takes something pretty special to pull me out of the shop. You know, I think I just never wanted to be, you know, you see someone, everybody's main goal is to not work anymore. I'm going to get so successful that I'm going to be a business owner and I'll have a, I'll take pictures of me at my desk on a phone doing business in my suit with a fake waterfall behind me. And like, that's what people's life goals is. And I just don't like, I saw it. I saw it at Boyd's. I saw it at performance machine. You know, I saw it, seen it all over the place where the owner becomes the fat cat and like, doesn't do shit anymore. Like, and I don't ever want to be that guy. I don't want to ever, I want to be the guy in the shop. I want to be the worker. You know, I want to be the guy that leads by example. And like, I know it's not a great business plan because I could probably make more money if I'm doing deals and stuff like that, you know, but I don't know. I, I'm happier working and like that's, I'm pretty sure I've, I blew this thing up as big as it, I think it's ever been, you know, with, with Walmart and stuff like that, but didn't. I was miserable, you know, and I think I'm happy just welding shit and making shit in my shop, you know. That's badass. 
What's uh, some of the best advice you've ever received and from who? Someone told me to stay scared all the time. Like stay scared. Like everything you have is going to be snatched away from you at any minute. That's, yeah, that's good advice. Second that you rest back on your heels, that's when it's all going to end. You know, the second you think that, oh, I've made it, I'm the man, that's when it's going to end. And like, I think that's probably why I'm the way I am. I just, you know, out of fear, I just work, you know, I don't want, not for monetary reasons, like bills are always going to come and go. Money's always going to come in, come out, wire transfers, checks, credit cards, all that stuff. It's going to go, payroll's going to eat it up, overhead, mortgage, cars, maintenance material all that stuff's going to eat up money but you know your pride and your integrity and your that's what's forever that's what sticks yeah you gotta you, know? you gotta stay ready so you don't have to get ready i mean that's because you gotta stay the light on the feet a good lesson for you too is like you know it can't be about money you can't build this huge roadster shop empire and only do it for growth and money and investors and loans and all that stuff because all that stuff's very fleeting you guys always have to do it for i mean my i love the customers and the pat on the back and the gun company like i i build every gun and i talk to every customer and build the stuff and it's a back and forth and i just i think i got away from that and bike business but the gun customers i just i love it i love making giving people more than they're expecting and like taking you know i built a lot of great shit i think and like but i've never built anything that made a grown dude like stand in front of me and weep and cry and gun stuff does that like it's has more meaning you know more more meaningful and i think it kind of supersedes like what I do supersedes money, you know, and it's like trying, I don't know. I just, well, it's interesting. You said that it supersedes money. Cause we're actually kind of trying to figure out how to get some of those 1911. So <laughs> if it supersedes money, <laughs> three grown men crying right here. Yeah. Yeah. You guys got a uh, good stuff to trade. I think I owe you money for a chassis for my Bronco. <laughs> yeah. I think it's here. Ready to rock. It's ready to roll. I think I was supposed, I got to go over and that's over at Monster Garage. I got to go look and see what trans is in that thing. So you guys can do the trans mount. We'll take a 1911 as payment. <laughs> yeah, you're going to wait for probably three years. Those if things that's, are. If that's Phil saying that, you better take that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm usually the one that makes those yeah. foolish burgers. Phil's, Phil's like, the oh, voice of reason. So cool as shit. <laughs> yeah. Wait, anyone of you guys a rifle? I haven't got a rifle. I, I check them out all the time. I'm always creeping on your. Let me know Website. what you want. Cool. Yeah, those nomads are fucking yeah. nuts, dude. I like your guns because they're like they're like hot rods. It's just I can't believe nobody's done anything like that in the gun world. Like it stands on its own. It's there's nothing like it. It's, yeah, it's a machine. It's a big machine shop Swiss machine game. Like they just yeah, like fit out two thousand of the same one. You buy this. Well, what about this one for my? I want to get this from my dad. He's retiring from the Navy and like, yeah, sorry, you get this one. You know, no one does. There's no, you can't upset that major production to like stop and make a one-off. And me, I've spent like 30 years only doing the one-offs. So yeah, it's easy. We go to the gun store like every few weeks and these guys are buying guns like crazy. I always stare at them. I'm like, eh, not going to buy anything today. I'm looking at them. Like, oh, I'm thinking it's like, dude, you could machine 
You machine that whole stock. Like we could plate that. We could Cerakote that. You could do this with that. And then I never buy shit, nor do I, nor do I machine anything. But <laughs> yeah, I look at them like hot rods. And I think that's probably, you know, you look at them probably like hot rods and bikes and they're, the outcome is so bitching. The style and craftsmanship is really probably the easiest part for me. The stuff that I'm like, my brain's wrapped around now is the functionality of it and just making them like super, you know, these are like guns that you could take to a limited class USPSA match and compete and win with it. You know, and like, you know, I just, that's what I'm about is like building the better mousetrap and figuring it out, you know, and like that you know, one, it, that 1911 you do, what's the, the G, the GMX, the GMX, Grandmaster. the Grandmaster, yeah. that the, the lines on that thing, the, it's the right amount of boxy without being fat. And it's, that thing is fucking sweet. It has the satin and the brush two tone. That's the one with that stepped mill on the trigger. Yeah, the thing is, yeah, and it's got the, like the triangle trigger guard, like yeah. the angle, the reverse angle. Yeah. That thing is bad as shit. The stepped mill on the trigger came from, right? No. Wheels that little John and I did when we were at Boyd's. Oh, <laughs> like, shit. See, it's a fucking hot rod. <laughs> stepped everything. That was, there was no 3D programs then. You do financing because yeah. I want one of those. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. 100% down, no monthly installment. Sweet. <laughs> Let me know what I owe you for that Bronco chest. I'll do you a pistol and a rifle. Cool. You guys just have for who gets the pistol and who gets the rifle. For sure. Uh, we do a couple of standard questions for all the guests. Um, what is in your pockets right now? It's time for you to do a pocket dump. I hope you came correct because this is Jesse James. So you better have some cool shit in your fucking pocket. Got my wallet. All right. That's just rubber band? straight rubber band, right? Oh, front pocket so it doesn't fall out. Front pocket rubber band. Gangster. Gangster. Got my Monica. Damn. And I got my this. Oh, <laughs> oh that's the big boy micro, right? Microtech, yep. Yep. And yeah, my phone customized. That's oh. it. I think You're there's anything. We were talking about the Marfions just the other day. Yeah, those are bitching. Yeah. What else you got? Oh, you don't even have to stay strapped. You just got them all around, right? You don't even have to carry. Yeah, I got one. I got a little revolver, two fifty-seven, all blacked out. No hand on my desk gun. Sweet. No hammer, no jammer. <laughs> <laughs> What's uh, your favorite car movie and why? Probably duel. <laughs> like, oh, dude, we watched that in school as a kid. I remember that. <laughs> That's the first one that popped into my mind. Was, like, fuck shit up and kill that motherfucker. It was like, <laughs> wasn't that like a dart, like a Dodge dart or something? Yeah, it was either a dart or a Valiant. I yeah, think. a Valiant. I think you're right. What else? Like, uh, Clockwork Orange because they like the XP two thousand or whatever that car that he like Malcolm Mc, Mc, McDowell like drove in that I don't know I think like probably the John Bonham segment in Song Remains the Same where John Bonham like drives a, a top fuel dragster at Santa Pod I don't know what else like I wish that cars were better in modern movies. You know, that's that's yeah. true yeah. statement. Yeah, there's like just nothing worth a shit. 
Yeah. Uh, who brought up Ford versus Ferrari? That was a well, pretty legit movie. Yeah. For, yeah. For, for seen that movie. Yeah, it was good. What uh what was the first car you owned and what's a good story about that car? Uh my first car was a 1959 American Rambler. I bought it, the clutch was out on it, and I bought it. I think I paid like five or six hundred bucks for it, and it had to do a clutch job on it, which is a torque tube. So I learned how to do all that when I was like 15. And then dude, I trade <laughs> like I had I was really into Volkswagens as a kid. Like after I got that, I got the Rambler when I was 15. And then like shortly after I had it probably for a year and then I traded it for a Harley, <laughs> like that didn't have a top end on it <laughs> and like got a bike. And then just, I worked at a Volkswagen place and like, so I just had Volkswagens after that. And probably until I was like, you know, 18, 19, you know, but always had a bike traded reliable transportation for unbuilt <laughs> unbuilt transportation <laughs> yeah like cars were always, i was i was into cars i mean i have I've had so many but always like bikes first you know cars were just for when it was raining and my dad was like really my dad was a uh you know really my dad was from compton so he's from the hub city so in 50s like really heavy into car customizing and had like my Impala I had was his that he had painted by Barris in 1962, like drove it from the dealership lot straight to Barris and painted, you know, candy blue and like Chrome reverse wheels and lowered it and all that. Shit. You know, like when I was probably junior high, school, my dad had an early eighties Fox body Mustang. And I remember like he showed up one day to pick me up from school and he lowered it. <laughs> and he took it like, like, <laughs> And I'm like, damn, look how good, you know, I just remember it was like when I'm like, you know, 11 or something to see like our regular little car we drive around, but slammed. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That, you know, he's got these badass car stories here. I am driving a fucking Chrysler, purple Chrysler LeBaron for my first car. His dad's Which, rolling to Barris yeah. to get a paint job. <laughs> Probably uh, explains the fucking skinny jeans. I, now, yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> 59 American Rambler wasn't badass. <laughs> like flathead six cylinder. What's your favorite car now that you own? Uh, my 54 Chevy. My flat black 54. That'll always be. I don't know. I got a, a 2004 Mercury Marauder that I love. Basically a cop car, right? Yeah. Like on steroids. Kind of. What is, uh, and the final question we have is what question do you get most from fans? What's something that just seems to come up time after time? Probably if they could come to the shop. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer or, is always I, no. It, well, the pe definitely the thing that I get asked the most is if I could teach people stuff, which I don't know. I have a funny relationship with that because I feel like, uh, people that stop midway or in the middle of their career and teach like everybody that does any kind of little bit of metal work. Oh, I'm going to have classes now. And like, I've seen some really great metal workers, Ron Covell being one of them. That's like world-class badass, awesome stuff. Like the 57 Chevy bike he did for Ness and that type of stuff, just beautiful metal work. 
but he stopped and started doing classes and, and it totally plateaued his skill set, his drive and his creativity because he's spending 90% of his time teaching people that don't know anything. So he only has to be better than them. He doesn't have to push in himself to his next level. And I think there was a short time I've, I've taught a couple of people one kid in particular, this kid named Sean in California, he's great. He's got a great career and just like opened his mind up. But I just don't, I feel like if I stop and teach, it means that I'm done doing what I want to do. And one, I don't have time for it, not even remotely, because I don't even have time for myself barely. So to stop and teach people and stop orders. And then two, I really have an inherent fear of like, I don't know. Like I'm not done, not done even remotely with what I'm trying to do or what I want to do or make. And so you don't ever want to be a parody or live up to that. What's the old saying? Those that can't do teach, you know, you don't want to ever kind of fall into that. Ovel things like since I went to him before I was at performance machine and went and apprenticed with him. And then I worked, ended up working at Boyd's Ron ended up, Hey, I should come. I'm going to be in Southern California. I should come down and do one of my seminars at Boyd's at Hot Rods by Boyd. And I've never really told anybody the story of this. It was the worst shit ever. Like, cause here's all these Swedes and all these old timers that are way better than him. And he's trying, he basically got laughed out of there. Oh yeah. That sucks. Yeah. Because he like was trying, he wanted to make something like a reverse curve or something. And everybody's like started yelling, no, fuck that. Let's make the scoop like you did for the black Perdome restoration. And so probably a pretty involved part that took a couple weeks to make. And they wanted him to make it in one or two days. And he basically, we had one of those big Urco power shrinkers, you know, those big giant ones. Yeah. And he basically kind of tried to make it just fucked up everything he was doing. And like everything he touched just went to shit and it, you know, which just happens. It doesn't mean that he's bad, but I don't want to be that guy. (laughs) You know, I'm like, (laughs) I just want to like focus on what doing, you know, if I ever, I could see myself being a shop teacher in high school, you know, maybe when I retire, Mr. (laughs) Mr. James, (laughs) I don't know if you'll pass the background check. Hey, kids want to (laughs) make, (laughs) <laughs> Dude, if you're gonna be like a metal shaping teacher though you gotta start doing weird shit like playing with trains and getting a little like touchy-feely you know <laughs> no i think it would be if i taught it wouldn't be high school i would teach like metallurgical science or shaping or sculpture theory practice at a university what a university would that's where i could see myself doing it in that venue like berkeley yeah, but I don't think they're <laughs> actually, you know what? <laughs> I kind of, there's a, a, I was looking at a, a residency at a place up by Berkeley that's <laughs> for some, and, but I just don't know if I could take the time off for a couple months and go do that. But you'd fit in real well up there. Eh, you know, I'm kind of, I don't know. I, <laughs> <laughs> You know, most of the people I admire and look up to that are artists are totally, you know, hyper left leaning, you know, tree hugger, like their ideals in life aren't the same as my ideals. You know, I think I'm an artist in my own 
chosen disciplines, but I don't, I don't, I don't think they'd like to be called tree huggers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just don't, I don't know. I just kind of like look at a lot of great, I study a lot of stuff like painting and uh, metalwork and sculpture and thing, you know, and I have a real distinct taste for it. Like I think 90% of it is shit. And it's like people doing soup. I think art should be, if you're an artist, you should be doing this thing that only you could do in that great, amazing way. I have a lot of trouble with art where people just take like some scrap metal, weld it together. Oh yeah, it's art. You know, unfortunately, like society doesn't see it that way, but I look at like, you know, Alberto Giacometti, who was a sculptor, you know, in the forties. And he made these tall, like five foot tall sculptures where he dripped brazing rod and dripped it in piles and made these whole, he did this walking man. And then, and the thing is like, it sold for $110 million. And I look at it and I'm like, we know how to braise. I know how to melt raising rod. I know how to stick it together. So I think like instantly I think, oh, well, fuck, I can make that for $110 million. I'll do it for 50 million. You know, and like <laughs> you look at the, but to think about that in the 1930s context, like he did that stuff when that kind of technology was brand new and cutting edge and to do it in a way where it's proportional. It doesn't look dumb. And, you know, it's like, that took some real skill to do it, you know? And I think art should be that. I don't know. Like, I just look at, I mean, you guys are probably like I am where like, I'll put all my artistic ability into a bracket, <laughs> you know, like at making in it. And it isn't just the style of it. It's like how clean it is, how, well it fits together how well it's cut and stuff like that and i think you know unfortunately like what we do and the discipline we've chosen isn't appreciated on a higher level of like fine art but i, I really think it is you know people you know like you were talking about the respectability of this kind of work and i still think there's people that don't respect it you know they still look down on me i get that you know they think um since you know i weld shit together i'm i must be just dumb because that's all i was able to learn how to do <laughs> you know like you know and i think it society as a whole doesn't really look at blue collar diesel mechanics welders pipeliners you know hvac guys that do mechanical you know, that type of stuff. They don't look at it as like, they still don't look at it as a viable profession and look how much these guys are making and look how it's also it the first guys they call when something's fucked it's, up. It's the first guys they call and there's plenty of those dudes making six figures. And honestly, like you, you have a conversation where you look at some of these like entry level white collar jobs and compare that, like you said, to like an HVAC dude. I mean, dude, that shit's, I even look at them and they came over to put those mini splits in. I'm yeah. like, holy, like that's, I don't know how to fucking do what this dude's doing. Yeah. You know, and I've got mm -hmm. like a shit ton of respect. Anytime we bring like a trade into the shop, whether it be like a plumber, the HVAC guy, the roofer, I'm like intrigued by what they're doing. Cause I'm like, I'm more respect for those dudes than like 
a fucking guy coming in and doing like some accounting or something because I think that takes oftentimes more intelligence than what a lot of these other jobs do. One guy takes pride in his work and the other guy's probably ready to jump out a window. Oh, 100%. Well, and he's using a computer program to like add all the shit together anyway. I mean, you can't use a computer program to like hook up the high side and the low side of the, you know, of the AC. Yep. Ask some people if you had unlimited budget, what would you do? But I guess in your case, it'd be more if you had unlimited time and resources, what would be your dream project thing to build? Car, bike, gun, knife? Uh, if I could build anything like right now, shit, I don't know. I'd probably finish my Fiat Topolino. <laughs> it's, it's sitting in the back porch behind my shop. I took it apart in my driveway in 1993. I bought it from the owner of Performance Machine. I took it apart and re- to rebuild it because it had an old drag master frame. And I we redid the frame while I worked at Boyd's and it still hasn't been back together yet. It was in that movie, Heart Like a Wheel, the Shirley Muldowney story. It's yeah. like the first race that blew up. And like, I don't know. Maybe I should have you bend me some new square frame rails for it. Send it over. Yeah. I got, those, are, those are cool. Think, I got the early style narrow Halibrands. It's got 12 spokes. It's got a blown big block. I just don't have time. Or at the very least, hang it on the wall. It'd be cool wall art. It's like start all these projects. I like get an idea and then I start it and I get all the parts and then I like oh, shit, I got to work on all these customer stuff. <laughs> like, you know, like, I want to build stuff, but it doesn't pay good at all to work on my own stuff. <laughs> like, I don't have good billable hours. <laughs> build too much cool shit. Everybody wants it. Yeah, I, I get, I'm pretty thankful because I could make a bunch of stuff that nobody wants to buy. You look at, like, Picasso never sold one painting while he was alive. Shit. You're not Van Gogh. Never sold one painting. They didn't sell any of them until after he died. You know, so I'm pretty lucky that this stuff's in high demand and like bikes that I built in the late nineties are going for six figures now. So like more than I people paid for them. So that's pretty awesome. Like crazy, crazy to me. Like I, I like, like some dude posted a picture online and he's got like 16 or 17 bikes that I built. You know, yeah, we get not, we get some customers out there that are just like consolidating roadster shop builds too. I got a, a awesome customer, Bobby, who's just got like a dozen roadster shop cars. He just scoops anytime one comes up for sale, he's on it. Long as it's a little weird when they collect your stuff and they buy all these bikes or cars, but they've never bought one from you. Yeah, yeah. Then they're just cheap. Right? <laughs> they're looking to score it cheap. But oh, Bobby's a good dude. He's he's got a few cars going here. They want to be in the Roadster Shop West Coast Choppers Club, but they've never given either one of us money. I'm like, yep. <laughs> yeah, you got to contribute a little you know, to join the club for sure. Uh, big thanks to our guest, Jesse James. Remember, you can learn more about his work at jessejames.com or on Instagram at Pope of Welding. But before we go, we're going to break down some of our new favorite pieces of the gear. And we also have an on the gas segment. In this segment, we take some time to give a shout out to an individual vendor shop or company that's got the pedal to the metal 
or foot on the gas, so to speak. They're doing great work and taking their projects and industry to the next level. Up this week is Moitz Motorcars from New South Wales, Australia. Do you guys know Moitz Motorcars? I do. I see them pop up like religiously on Instagram because they've got great content presented very well, and it's typically on a Roadster Shop chassis. So it, yeah, that 68 Camaro <laughs> they're doing for Customs for Cancer is going to be pretty, pretty sweet. Yeah, they're doing killer metalwork. There's something about the dudes on the other side of the pond that can really bang out some metalwork. It's it's funny because it's almost like identifiable. You ever notice that when you see it, you always know it's, it's yeah, you know it's Australian. Yeah, it's like, like super kick ass. Because in Australia, just, yeah, yeah, and you just know. But yeah, those guys are doing some phenomenal work. I uh, I dig everything they're doing, and what, they've got some other kind of special spec stuff coming down the line, don't they? That's a, yeah. that's an Australian only deal, right, Phil? Yeah, we work with them, um, kind of going back and forth, uh, doing some CAD design halfway around the world. Um, they sent us some files, and we designed a custom spec chassis for Australian Ford Falcons. So anybody in the Australian market looking for a bolt-on spec chassis for an Australian Ford Falcon, uh, hit up the guys at Moitz Motorcars. They've got you covered. They will take care of you. Moitz Motorcars. On the gas. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. And this is, we actually did a poll. This did is we, I was going to ask if we pulled What's anybody we to pulled, see this is their favorite. We've polled several people. This is everyone's favorite segment. And we do every episode, the glove box. Ooh. The glove box is where we each do a pocket dump and tell you about any cool new gear, guns, EDC shit, whiskey, and other stuff that we're into. What do we have this week? First up, we're going to do a pocket dump first. That's it. What do we have in our pockets right now? Phil, I'm going to you first. I went a little different this week. What do you I, got? Uh, I you broke out a, the, the namesake right here. You're pulling all that out of fanny pack. <laughs> I said pockets. <laughs> you're the one that's been jonesing for like a new carry device, and we've recommended the fanny pack over and over again. <laughs> Phil's still manning it up with a traditional wallet and a knife. Anyways, I have a Gerber pocket knife. Unfortunately, no relation. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be doing a podcast if I was related to the knife company or the baby food company or the toilet toilet company. company. But we are doing a podcast about what's in our pocket. So I have a pretty badass Gerber jukebox. Kind of looks like a straight edge razor. Old school, mother of pearl, black and uh, silver handle flipper. Um, Cool little... $35, $40 $35, $40 knife. It's a great knife. I have the tortoise shell. Jeremy Uh-oh. has the tortoise shell as well. as well. I love the blade on that. We're all suckers for that little, like you said, uh, straight razor slash cleaver kind of blade. That's a great daily driver. It is. I got to get used to flipping it open. You got to break that sucker in like yeah. Josh. So you got to oil it up, flip that thing about 10,000 times. I've been yeah. playing all day with it. Yeah. It takes. Give it to your kids. Let them play with it. Don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't work it out. <laughs> Disclaimer, yeah, don't do not give, it to give the knife to your kids. <laughs> I got my son a pocket knife. It's wood. Is he, well, is that, he getting the flip down? He's working on it. Yeah, he was showing uh, Jerison why the other day how to do it. He's snapping so it's a it? little kit uh, from Cricket. Yeah, Cricket. Yeah. Um, just pieces of wood. You build it yourself or build it with your son. And then uh, he thinks he's a little badass because he's running around with a pocket knife that's wooden and learning how to flick and... Uh, I bet he loves that because you've always told me about his weapons that he has stuck under his bed. He snaps it pretty good, too, because he he gave it to Wyatt. Wyatt's trying to snap it, and he's doing like this windmill trying to get it out. So we had to teach him kind of like how to flick flick the wrist. All in the wrist. Yeah. But that 
your name actually came up when they were playing with that because I said, man, after Josh cutting the shit out of his fingers trying to open his bench made the other week, what better <laughs> knife for him than a wooden like, child's wooden folding knife? Well, safety knife for I, you. I nicked, I just nicked my finger once and I'm never going to hear the end of it. Nope. It's what happens. When you're a badass, sometimes you're going to get some cuts and scars. I mean, any other man would have taken just, probably an amputation or 26 stitches and I just... Super glued. How big, big was the blade on that knife? 18 inches, 14 inches? It's like That was about three-eighths of an inch. <laughs> it's a tiny little blade. <laughs> it was a little bit. I'm little pretty sure. I don't know if it was your allergies or what, but your eyes were watering. I don't know if First of all, what stop. was going on there. Because we all know when it comes to sicknesses, I don't get sick and it definitely don't get allergies. <laughs> I'm undefeated when it comes to <laughs> sickness. You're so old, you've developed like old immunities. <laughs> He's going to end up with polio. Polio. I was going to go. <laughs> that's the one thing that's yeah. going to get me. Uh, Jeremy, what do you have in your pockets tonight? Dude, I, I'm packing some interesting gear tonight. You're sitting a little lopsided. I am. I'm sitting a little lopsided. And I actually it was getting a little uncomfortable. But uh, what I brought out tonight. <laughs> there we go. That's <laughs> uh I feel better. <laughs> feel better now. <laughs> so, what you're hearing there. Two hours you had those things up there, huh? <laughs> yeah. Those are the chains that tie my two nunchucks together. So, this is a special night. This is a very special night. Uh, this was a gift yep. from Alan Johnson. We received. Would you say that as of right now, we're probably, I don't know, dozen more episodes in? Is this the greatest gift that we have gotten from a guest so far? Absolutely. By and far. Dude, these are like they're legit. They say they're actually they actually say made in China on them. So, so you real. know they're real. These right. are actually legitimate Chinese known chucks. I cracked one and a half already. In about <laughs> Phil, what would you say that would be in I don't know, two and a half minutes yeah. of opening Under the box. five for sure. <laughs> Excessively nunchucking. <laughs> it's is that what you call it? Is it nunchucking? I don't know. I At just know rate, that it was basically a 12-year-old with a pack of firecrackers. <laughs> Alan and Angie hooked these up. Yeah. So those are fucking awesome. But it's I feel like the theme is maybe like fighting combat today because I... Or shit, you thought you were cool. No, inadvertently, 12. I switched it up today. And look at that bad boy. Oh, that's straight up. Yeah. Real comb? Deal. No, that's not a comb. That's a legit stiletto switchblade from the movie outsiders something like that that's a real deal italian i believe it's italian these things you what never makes, know uh, hold on first of all so, what makes we'll, you say that it's italian dude, it says it on it look he got an olive garden hey, shut your mouth still it says stiletto it's the tour of tuscany italy you know the way it snaps too this thing's heavy this is a real deal stiletto i've had this for years it's a lacoste it, it's not italian Come over here. And That's pretty sweet. Yeah, it's awesome. Is it sharp? Let me see it. No, I'm not going to let you touch let it. Let me touch you touch yourself again. Just let me touch it. Just a little bit. There. Hand it to me. Freaking blade first. It's pretty cool. I like the handle on it. You. Does that explain the leather jacket, Phil? Yeah, and the pack of cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> With the sleeves rolled up. Okay. Here gloves. Yeah. Yeah, Phil's carrying a little like $30 Gerber 
pocket knife and I've got a stiletto switchblade. So you guys laugh it up. Yeah, Go ahead. Nunchucks. Nunchucks and a switchblade. and a fucking switchblade. Yeah. Who sucks? Yeah. That's, that's something to make fun of for sure. <laughs> Definitely make fun of the guy with nunchucks and a switchblade. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> uh, Go Alan. ahead, Josh. What do you have in your, in your pockets? Done. A, a comb? <laughs> Some aspirins? Uh, I am... Uh, Pretty boring today. We're rocking the... Uh, hold on, everybody. Are you listening? That is a... Uh, that's one of the... That's one of the more go-to daily drivers. That's the uh, Microtech UTX-85. Not near as big as Jesse's. Jesse had a way bigger one than me. Yeah, he's got the Marfion. Yeah, he's got the big boy. Um, but I've had this knife for quite some time. I think... I, I could be mistaken, but I think this was the knife... Purchased at our first dual Smoky Mountain Knife Works mm. visit. That was years yeah. and years ago. That is the best time of year. Yeah. So uh, that thing's weathered. Oh, it's, it's got. Yeah, this some, is, I was gonna say it's uh, nicely used. Yeah, this one's it's uh, distressed, if you will, in the C10 world. Uh, I really like this knife. Uh, it's had to go back to Microtech once for a uh, spring replacement. That was a. Uh, like six day turnaround. Threw it in the box, sent it to him, came right back, sharpened, hmm. done. Nice. Good company. And the little thing on the back, that's like a window breaker. Is that what uh, they never... call it a window breaker? Uh, also a skull breaker, if you will. So why don't you come at me with your nunchucks and see what happens? Gladly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's what we got in our pockets today. Oh, Alan Johnson also sent us some whiskey we'll talk about in another podcast. And we, so. Any other guests need to probably step their game up because Alan sent us nunchucks. None. It's none. It's none. It is none. none. We had to Google that. Yeah, it's nunchucks. So, next thing up on In the Glove Box, what are we drinking? Tonight, what are we drinking? You've got the bottle over there. I can't even see it. It's almost... We like, drank too much of it, whatever it is. <laughs> I'd almost consider it a dusty because it's been sitting on the shelf, sealed unopened and I figured we should crack this thing for a special guest that we had tonight. So special guest, special bourbon. That's right. So it's an Elijah Craig single barrel 18 year. Not something you're gonna stumble across at you're your run down at Target and get that at, right at your local Piggly Wiggly. But uh <laughs> pretty solid bourbon. 90 proof. Uh this was barreled in 97. So it's you know it's old. I'm I will, we'll give this one over you in just a second, but I will say after drinking as much as we have, this one's got a little bit more burn for a 90 than I'm used to, but in a good way. I, I like it. Um, but there's 94s that don't that don't burn like that, but I, not in a bad way. Just making an observation. It's a good observation. It is a good observation because it does. It's got some burn to it, but it's, it's tolerable. It's, but it's got a good thicker syrupy and stop before I'm not going down that path it does have a little bit more more thicker consistency good mouthfeel feel a little oily it does you know you're drinking something special almost like you're doing something you ain't, you ain't supposed to <laughs> good off the shelf whiskey but every time you go back to like a rare hard to find bottle it's like yeah that's why you can't get it like it's yep. that good It. I think they, it definitely does make the uh, significant difference Every it's smooth, a little bit of heat. You start thinking that the stuff is 
after you drink a lot of it, to your point, you start thinking that maybe you're psyching yourself up because you know how much the thing's worth or how much you paid for it or how rare it is or something. And you cycle back around and every now and then you have something that is so nice that you haven't had it in a while. You do realize like, yeah, it's, it's expensive and nice for a reason. Um, it really is good. I mean, we're, we're blown away at some whiskey sometimes when you like take a chance, you're like, Oh, it's a hundred dollars. It's gotta be good. And it's not. Um, but then the old faithfuls never seem to disappoint. I think we'll start digging into the vaults a little deeper here. We've uh, some dusties. I don't know if we're on the dusties yet, but we've uh, we've kind of dabbled. Murder his stash. Oh, I had some of his the other night. I just stopped by there and grabbed one of them. Yeah. It's old, so you don't drink it. We so did have some the one night. We it's we, a '67. When are you going to drink it? It's just been sitting there for yeah. that long. <laughs> it go stale. Yeah, the last <laughs> we poured something from '54, and then. Our wives spoiled the evening. It's time to go. Thank you. Yeah. So we had to shoot it. <laughs> yeah, <we're> like, <laughs> we thought this was going to be like this super special thing. Poor this 1954 was a Canadian whiskey. Yeah. And the two of them come down going crazy. It's time to leave. So, so Elijah Craig, 18 year. Unfortunately, we'd like to give reviews on something anybody can find. I'm sure there's going to be guys out there that says, I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. As a general rule of thumb, that's going to be one of the more difficult ones to find. Now, before we move away from that, reviews. If we're giving reviews, same review we always give, one through ten. Sometimes you get a little crazy on your reviews. I don't know if you know, one is the lowest, ten is the highest. Okay. okay. So one is not good. One is not good. Ten right. is very good. Right. Phil, you're going to start one to ten. Eight, three. Wow. I liked it. That's a huge I'm, review. I'm with you. I'm gonna I'm gonna echo your statement of an eight three. Eight, three. It is an eight three. Jeremy, anything you say now sounds stupid. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Take a look at my bourbon collection. Tell me that's stupid. What's your review? Seven point nine. I think it's a phenomenal bourbon, but I think there's other bourbons of the age or older, twenty years and things that are a step up from it. Hey, you got 1.7 steps up. You can take all the way to 10. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. The nunchucks are talking tonight, though. Yeah, man. Hey, who hey. has a switchblade? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I have a switchblade. Right. Who's got a broken set of nunchucks? You're that kid on Christmas. I mean, it's not even Christmas night, and the toy's already broken. It's already fucking destroyed because you played with it too hard. Tell me this. Out of the three of us, we both went hard as hell with our nunchuck skills as soon as we open the box. No, I went 50% on mine because it was a gift. And I've learned <laughs> I've learned I've learned from history that you don't go hard on a gift because you don't want to break it. With with your nunchuck nunchuck skills. You can't do even you, say it, right? Do you agree now that once the new studio is built that the self-defense dummy is a go? We oh, have to have the self-defense dummy absolutely. in. It. Yeah, full blown and then life size with trauma indicating I want, blood. You're going to put a ping pong ball gently in your lips. In my gonna, lips? I'm going to nunchuck the Absolutely right down your throat. Out of, Absolutely right out of not. your mouth. No. Without touching your lips. You could have a hundred tries and you wouldn't catch it. Because you're not going to try. In, gonna, in which direction do you think I'd err? <laughs> <laughs> you think I'd come up short or overcommit? <laughs> Uh, next up, item number three and our final item on In the Glove Box. This is something... All right, now, I honestly, I wrote this stuff down. Serious face. Yeah, serious, yeah, serious face. face. I wrote this stuff down. I didn't do a lot of research. I just... 
I humored you in in because it's something you wanted to add to it. Yeah. It's high order smokers. So higher order smokers at higher order smokers on Instagram or drinksmokers.com. That's as much as I know about it. So explain to me, I got down here, it's individual cocktail smokers. So like, if, yeah, is this up, worthy of our podcast? Tell me what the I, fuck this is. I would say it's absolutely worthy. It came up as an ad on my Instagram and I smoke a lot of cocktails at home and I love them. If you've got friends over, you're making a Manhattan, you're making an old fashioned, like everybody makes old, you know, everybody makes it the same yeah. way. You smoke it, it, it kicks it up like tenfold, but it's a pain in the ass. You got to take, I've got like this globe that goes this over is the not, top of This it. is not the globe. No, this is not. So we've well, all got the smokers and the little handheld. I mean, it, it, so smoking an, a so cocktail is a, is a, it's an it's ordeal. 9.9 out of 10. Oh, yeah. Or 10 but out of 10. It, but it's, it's an ordeal. It's an yes. undertaking. So I saw this, and this is like a super simple way to do it. I'm, cool. pulling, I'm pulling it up. If you pull it up on Instagram, it's a and it's kind of trick looking. It's a neat little... Higher order smokers. Neat little wood deal that kind of caps the top of or like a rocks glass. So you make your cocktail, throw it on there, and then you can get you know, anywhere. You can get these little wood chip deals you get like they cherry them. they sell all the wood chips they get yeah. a bunch of different flavors they sell them too. i use cherry wood when so I do this mine. is a single this is for a single cocktail yeah per glass so you throw it on there take your uh, little take your little blow torch your lighter fire it up and make yourself a cocktail even just you know regular bourbon i don't know that i'd do it with an elijah craig 18 year but what's your what's drink? your favorite smoked cocktail I like smoking them. Take a Manhattan no, and smoke it. I knew that because that's that's your best drink that you've ever made me. So I like this. So this is just where you can smoke a cocktail or two. Would you agree that if you've got friends over, you know, and the the ladies are talking, and you say, "Hey, you want a, you want a glass of whiskey? Why don't you two fine gentlemen come downstairs?" That if you pull out the smoker and you're fixing to smoke a cocktail, that that is stepping the game up. It kicks it up for sure. You've already shown them your old dusties, and then uh, I would just go with a taste that makes it a lot better. I don't care about flexing like you're going with, but oh well, showmanship is half the half <laughs> well the in, in bartending. You in your short men's robe, walking down. <laughs> yeah, they've got they've got them in a variety of like <laughs> they've got them in a variety. This is the first, first men's robe <laughs> comment that's been on the podcast. We'll get there. Yeah. Just a matter right, of serious time. take on it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think this thing would be awesome. I'm actually going to order one. I'm going to get one because I'm. I actually ordered one earlier. Did you get me one? No, I didn't. Damn it! I didn't order one. I'm going to order one tomorrow though. But I don't like going through all the hassle of pulling out all the smoking supplies. So I'll definitely get one of these. Give it a shot. We'll report back. Hey, this is something. This is this is absolutely no sponsorship whatsoever. And it just looks we're cool. Gonna, we're going to keep our integrity with this podcast. We're going to tell you straight up. If it's good or if it that sucks. We've, if we've been paid for. <laughs> and we're going to tell you that this is a sponsorship. And we're going to tell you if it's good or it's not. And we're going to tell you this is just something we found that we thought it was fucking cool. Try it out. I will agree, though, serious face on the smoked Manhattans. It makes a world of difference. It makes a uh, huge world of difference. Vegas was the first time I think we came across it at Bizarre Meats. They had a smoked uh, old-fashioned. Yeah, that was good. Those were phenomenal. Ago. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It didn't even know it was a thing before that. It's uh if you've never, and I'm, I'm sure there's people that are that are well, way more versed in cocktails than we are, and they're thinking, 
Or, may, guys, or maybe not. And you fuck guys you are, people. You guys are fucking idiots. But there's also people that aren't and that are just getting into it and they're trying. I, I cannot overstate this enough that when you start getting into cocktails, if you smoke a cocktail, it takes it up to a whole another level. And it's not something you do every single night. It's not something you do yes. every single weekend. It's a special little treat. It's a special little treat. Well, hey, we are, uh, what, three quarters of the way through in Elijah Craig 18. We actually started with Old Elk Weeded. We are that same... Fucking dude showed up and overserved us again. Every night. Every night. That was actually a good episode, though, with Jesse. Yeah, cool to hear his take on everything he's done. Just he should write a book. Fabricator, builder. He's lived a life. Yes. And I have a yeah. switchblade. All right. Yeah. You got a switchblade. Badass. Yeah. You zip your sleeves back on that leather jacket. <laughs> I was just going to ask if you use that to cut the fingers off your gloves. <laughs> Thanks again for everybody listening to Oil and Whiskey. We seriously appreciate it. This is, uh, we're, I don't know, dozen more episodes in, and uh, we've gotten some really good reviews, and we're humbled by the response that we've got. We couldn't, uh, couldn't do this if really nobody ever gave a shit about it. So seems like people give like some shits about Three it. Three quarters of a shit. Yeah. So seriously... For everybody out there that's sending us information and pictures of their wallets and everything else that we mentioned in the podcast. Um, let anything us know else anything you guys else. want to hear about. Yeah, absolutely. What's on your mind? What do you want to hear about the shop, the builds, the industry? A lot of people have our cell phones. Text us, email us, direct message us. Any bourbons you like drinking, Yeah, send them our way. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating and review. And thanks again to our guest, Jesse James. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Roadster Shop, and you can follow Jesse James at Pope of Welding. We'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.